Hey, good morning. Let's jump right into Matthew's gospel uh, this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 12. So just one verse. It's going to, uh, to come across in some ways as um, a moral teaching. Um, it's, uh, it's surprising uh, just how easy this ethic is to embrace but also how difficult it is to, um, to live out. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 says this. This is the golden rule. You've probably heard of it. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus' teaching here says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus Christ, the Lord, speaking. It's his word to us. Uh, the golden rule. We know this as the golden rule. Here's a question I just want to ask for your participation in. If you're willing to answer, why do you think this is called or known as the golden rule? What is it about this that makes it the golden rule? Why? If everybody did it, everything would be good. Our relationships would certainly be improved. Fabric of society certainly improved. Why else? What else? What do you think? Why is it called the golden rule? Yeah. Okay. So the good works that the people of God do in the name of Christ will last. Period. Be remembered. Give glory to God. Anything else? Anybody else want to take a stab at it? You guys are going deep. Loving your neighbor, like it's a means to love your neighbor. So there's great commandment stuff wrapped up in this, which we'll get to. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. And there's some really interesting history to all of this. An emperor in the second century named Alexander Severus, he reportedly had this saying gilded in gold and fixed to his chamber walls. The golden rule. It's known as the golden rule historians say, because of that. Severus was known for being tolerant of Jews, being tolerant of Christians alike in a period that was fraught with persecutions from emperor to emperor in Roman society. Um, it's not believed that Severus was a convert either to Judaism or to Jesus. He did not enter by the narrow gate, as we learned last week, but nonetheless, um, he was favorable in his disposition toward the people of God. Um, a form of the golden rule is known throughout the entire world. Like this is something that is ingrained in us. Parents who are parenting young kids are oftentimes like we're trying to get this ethos into our kids. Like if you want them to treat you well, treat them well. It's known throughout the entire world and virtually every major religion uses it in some form, either in the positive form or in the negative form. Um, some may be surprised to hear this, but Jesus wasn't the human originator of the, uh, of the golden rule. He was uh, for sure the divine author of it. But uh, centuries before Jesus ever lived, some form of this existed in uh, history and in various religions and philosophies. We'll get to that in a little bit as well. Um, Though to be fair, the way that Jesus phrased the golden rule, and it's positive, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do that proactively to them. To be fair, he, uh, he packaged it, he phrased it, framed it in its highest human ethical form. We attribute this positive way of saying it 
to Jesus. It's an ethical standard, like I said earlier, that is incredibly easy to embrace. It's easy to understand. Yeah, yeah, if we all did that, the world would be a better place, would it not? Yes. And simultaneously, it's incredibly difficult for us to live it out, to live our lives in consistency to that one pithy little phrase. Like, that is incredibly difficult uh, to live out. On Wednesday of this week, okay, irony, the, the, the one verse that I have to embrace, to internalize, and then to try to teach on a Sunday coming up on Wednesday of this week, I completely and totally forgot about it, turned to self, chose self first, and made a mess of a relational situation this week. Like, I felt like a total idiot on Thursday morning, like, 12, 15, 16 hours after the events of Wednesday when I remembered that this was my task. Why did I not just embrace that ethical standard in this relationship? So much fallout could have been averted. So much good actually could have come, but I disregarded it, which is humbling me and has been humbling me this week. Because I'm a forgetter and I just recognize my human nature, but also it's been heating up my worship because I recognize just how consistently the Lord Jesus Christ keeps pursuing me, keeps setting me right, keeps drawing me to repentance, keeps drawing me to rejoicing in the fact that I am not justified in his sight based on my effort, my good works, but rather on his effort on my behalf and his good work before the Father to live perfectly in my place. So, It's easy to embrace. It's hard to live out. Sunday, this last Sunday, our big idea was followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. There's an act of the will. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we choose with our will to follow Jesus every day. This morning's big idea is a continuation of that. Really, it's 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 an application of that. So today's big idea goes like this. Choosing to follow, uh, followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day Here's the application, by actively looking for ways to do unselfish good to others. This is not the only way to follow Jesus. This is not the only way to choose Jesus. No way. This is a primary way out of this text that we're in this morning that we can choose to follow him by actively using our mind, using our will, using our eyes, using our, uh, our, our understanding of the world around us and actively looking to do a kind of good for others that doesn't just serve ourselves first, but rather it's a form of denial of self, which Jesus said would indicate who his disciples are those who deny themselves and follow him. So followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day by actively looking for ways to do unselfish good to others. I know that's a mouthful, but you get the picture. Um, Three three kind of big headings this morning trying to illustrate this. Um, Number one, the world has its way. Uh, it, It has a pretty dysfunctional way. We'll call it in the spirit of the Olympics, the bronze way. Uh, There's also a moral way. We'll call it the, the silver way. It's good, but not quite the Jesus way, which will be the, the gold way. So we're going to go quick. We're going to go fast this morning. But the world has its way. And the world's way is the way of a kind of cancel culture. It's a way of retribution oftentimes. Or it's just a way of reciprocation in a good sense. So essentially it's framed by this. I'll do to them what they did to me. 
So maybe they do good. You do good to me, I'll do... You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. There's a phrase that we use, that we know, right? But also, if you harm me, I'm going to harm you. If you get in my way, I'm going to get in your way. If you cut me off, I'm going to cut you off. The way of retribution, if that's, if we're using it in the negative sense, the way of retribution, what it does is it shapes a vengeful and petty culture. That's what it gives birth to. Just more, it's a, it multiplies a vengeful, petty culture. It shapes an, immense, an immensely selfish ethic that puts self first, ends with self, and disregards the greater good. So essentially it says, everyone else be damned, but not me. Everyone else can go to, but not me. The problem with that ethic, though, is what? You're one person in a sea of many And if they're aimed at themselves, but saying you can go to, then you're severely outnumbered. It's every man for himself, every woman for herself, and it creates a culture of division. King of the Hill is a really, really, really fun game to play, but it's not a good ethic to shape your life by. I'm going to climb up, pull them down, rise up in their place. Creates hostility and distrust. Jesus confronts the way of retribution in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he actually, right early on, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since late January, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, go there in your Bibles if you would, uh, he, conf- he begins to confront this way of re- retribution and foreshadow even kind of a golden rule ethic. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 48, I'm just going to read this, not offer much commentary at all on it. Jesus speaking here, teaching, he's saying, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, listen to this, turn to him, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, so that you may um, show what he's like to the world around you. Because the father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the pagans do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen to this. This is all generosity language. Do not resist. Turn to him. Let him have Go with him. Give to the one. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect and mature as your father is ultimately perfect, the mature one. All of it is generosity language. It's language in service, language um, where we are, uh, it's language of service on behalf of the other. It's language that's rooted in grace, undeserved favor, undeserved good, undeserved benefit and blessing. And grace is the operating system of the gospel. Generosity is the operating system of the gospel. As followers of Jesus, you guys, we do not do to others what they do to us. We don't give to others what they deserve. 
We have a higher ethic than that. We extend generosity that they don't deserve. Like our God, showing what he's like, who has provided so much to us that we do not deserve. The Apostle Paul in um, uh, Colossians, he's writing to an ancient church, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. He'll give the people of God a vision for um, rather how we are to live, the flavor, the vibe, the feel of our culture, of our life. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved by God, compassionate hearts, kindness. Don't for a minute think this is weak. This is harder than hatred. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another person, forgiving the other person as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace, the Apostle Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule, take up residence in your hearts to which you are indeed called together in one body, one church. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell, take up residence in you richly. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything as his representative. Do everything knowing that you and I are his ambassadors giving thanks to God the Father through him. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the hard stuff. We are looking to him and giving thanks to him. The way of Jesus points us to a better way, period. A way that betters the world around us, that betters families, that betters women, that betters children, that betters coworkers, that betters businesses, that betters the economies, that betters the world. The way of Jesus is a better way. Do to others what you want them to do for you. This is a tangible way for followers of the real Jesus to imitate the real Jesus and thereby show the real Jesus to the people around us who are looking in on our lives. So the world has its way. It's bronze, it's wooden, it's plastic, it's cheap. I'm going to just reciprocate on your terms. You define it, I'll reciprocate. No, that's weak. There is a moral way that's stronger, though. It's the silver way. The moral way is embodied by every major world religion and every philosophy, really, in some form, um, many of which are much better than the world's way. Many, though, they state the golden rule kind of in its negative or its prohibitive form. So it goes something like this. Do not treat others in the way that you do not want to be treated. Okay. That's good. That's an improvement. Let's not treat others in the way that I myself don't want to be treated. Essentially, it's a do no harm ethic. Don't do any harm. Don't do any harm. Ancient Egypt uh, and some papyrus that was found in like 26, between 26 and twi- uh, 2600 and 2300 years ago said this, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Pretty clear. Ancient India One should never do something to others that one would regard as an injury to one's own self. Ancient Greece, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. This is all kind of the same way of saying a similar thing. Isocrates said that. Ancient Rome, treat your inferior. This is a little different, starting to mend and meld some golden rule ethic into it, some positivity into it. So treat your, if you're here, treat your inferior as you would wish your superior to treat you. Seneca the Younger said this. A rabbi in Judaism, around the time of Jesus, Rabbi Hillel, 
he was, somebody came to him and asked a question to him that put him to the test. And he said, essentially, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. And then listen to this language that's strangely similar to what Jesus says in the golden rule. This is the whole Torah. This is the law and prophets and writings. The rest is explanation, Hillel said, go and learn. He was drawing on the great commandment, the second part of the great commandment, which comes out of Leviticus in our Old Testament, chapter 19, verse 18, which says, love love your neighbor as yourself. The moral way is a really good ethic. It's a good ethic. I'm not frowning on it at all. Yet, it does not rise above the golden rule. It doesn't better it. Because, why? Because it doesn't propel a kind of Christ-exalting good out into the fabric of society. So the strength of a do-no-harm ethic is that it restrains evil. You don't want it done to you, don't do it to them. It restrains evil. But it does not proactively build goodness out into society, send goodness out into society. It doesn't bring credit either to Jesus through our networks of relationships as his followers. So we can say, if you don't like being used, don't use others. If you don't like having things taken from you, don't take them from others. If you uh, don't want to be cheated, do not cheat others. Yes, yes, yes. Or we can say, if they have done good to you, then do good. And if you got my bill at the restaurant, I'm going to get yours for the next one, right? We do that all the time. We kind of compete in that way. It's not wrong, but there's still a better way. There's still a better way. There's the Jesus way. This would be the gold way. It's incredibly creative. The Jesus way goes beyond do no harm, and rather it seeks to do active, unselfish good on behalf of others. That's what it's about. There's a a scholar. He's a heavyweight in his category, uh, R.T. France. He says, "As as a general principle to guide us in specific ethical decisions, the golden rule has not been bettered. There's just not a better baseline rule for how to treat other people than the golden rule. You can try. You cannot come up with a better, more wide-ranging rule for guiding your ethical behaviors. And then he goes on to say, in the positive form that's propounded by Jesus, it makes a very far-reaching demand. It makes a demand for unselfish love and action. There's another philosopher who's recently passed away. His name's Dallas Willard. He says this, he says, the golden rule is devoted to the good in the lives of those around us. It's devoted to good in the lives of those around us. And this reaches far beyond the mere absence of harm. It aspires toward a remarkable richness in their lives, not simply the alleviation of suffering. So the golden rule, the way of Jesus, aspires leans in, lunges at active richness in the lives of other people, not just the alleviation of suffering. Do you see how that's good for the world? Do you see how that's good for communities? Do you see how that's good for the people around us? Again, the way of Jesus, it goes beyond do no harm. but Rather, it's seeking to do active, unselfish good on behalf of others. I've been thinking about you church. I've been thinking about the individuals in the seats, in this room, in this gathering, and in the last gathering. I'm thinking about uh, people like the Nunezes who are regularly giving of themselves, present, who just have a posture and attitude of service. I think about Wayne and Ashley Lockman. I think about the Brazils. I think about the Zycheks. 
I think about the Trosclairs. I think about Avalon. I think about Matthew Nolan. I think about Josh Christensen. I think about the Reinbolts. I think about many of you. Some of you I did not name. It's not because I don't think this of you. It's just because I've got a limited amount of time. I mean, I could go by and, and say, this is like what I experience from you is a general, generous posture to do good in the lives of the people around you. You're just kind of like, you're positioned like, what do people need? See if I can help them out. Or you're listeners for the people around you, and you're actively seeking to do unselfish good on their behalf. And so as I watch you, as I learn from you, that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm learning from you. Joe Cernick said, I'm going to bring my grill up and we're going to make breakfast for everybody at man camp. That is seeking to do unselfish good for the 26, hopefully more, guys that are registered for man camp this weekend. Yeah, like, thank you. I, I follow, I see your example and it influences me. It teaches me. And so I want to follow you all as you follow Christ. I'm so like proud of you. This is the, this is the posture of our community. I'm grateful, grateful, grateful. So look around you. Follow their example as they follow Jesus. It's alarming how much Jesus entrusts to you and I. I'm alarmed by it. Um, it's, it's alarming how much Jesus entrusts just to the world around us, to the, to the people around us. I'm quickly weary and wary of teaching that says something to the effect of, like, trust yourself. You're enough. That's going on all over the place. It's everywhere. You're not enough. Jesus is enough. You'll be okay, but you're not enough. <laughs> right, for what? I'm, I'm a spe like, the, the flags especially go up uh, when the, 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 the mantra is, follow your heart, Right? But here, Jesus gives incredible freedom and extends a profound level of trust to all people, Christians and non-Christians. As creator of humanity, it's almost as if, and, I, and I'm being like, I think that as creator, it seems that he knows what he's doing. It seems that he recognizes and sees humanity's image-bearing conscience, and he understands that as I give them this command, this moral teaching, that in the overwhelming majority of opportunities, they're just going to do the right thing. They're going to get it right. They have the stamp of the living God upon them. They have a sense of moral compass within them. And when asked, what is it that you want them to do for you? They're just going to get it right in the overwhelming majority of circumstances. That endears me to him. Can you see and understand how much responsibility the real Jesus is just giving to you and I? He's just saying here. He's giving us good responsibility. The level of trust that he extends to us and the respect that he offers us is so honoring. Praise his name. He's for his people. Take a moment and just breathe, if you would. Like, especially those of you who have endured heavy-handed church cultures, abusive church cultures, 
church cultures where you just couldn't get it right. Nobody was getting it right. You're just constantly wrong. There's constantly more, 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 more that you need to do. The real Jesus is essentially passing the ball of respect, dignity, and responsibility into your hands, into our hands. And he's saying, what is it that you want? Okay, do that for them. You go first. It'll be okay. I'll be with you. You go first. I'll provide. Trust me. Imagine if this church family embodied Jesus' ethic. Just a little bit more than we do today. Just a little bit more. Just incrementally, a touch more. What kind of healing? What kind of honor? What kind of growth? What kind of gratitude? What kind of maturity could rise up and take the place of woundedness? Healing for woundedness. What kind of honor could rise up and take the place of dishonor? What kind of gratitude could rise up and take the place of grumbling? What kind of maturity could rise up and take the place of immaturity? What kind of gratitude, growth, strength could come? It's so hard, like, to embody it, right? It's easy to embrace it, hard to live it out. But the beauty of this command from our Christ is that the invitation to remember and to return to this ethic is never repealed based on our performance. He doesn't just take it back. He doesn't take the ball and go home when you get it wrong, like I did on Wednesday. But rather, whoa, there he is, Thursday, saying, bro, check yourself Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember how I've given you a family to love and to respect and to care for. Remember, you know what to do. You're right. You're right. And so rather than groveling in guilt and shame, I have an opportunity of repenting and saying I'm sorry. And then I have the opportunity to live in freedom and renewed relationship and reconciliation with people that I've harmed. Jesus of Nazareth has wanted us to know his love, so he's come to us to demonstrate his love without price. But don't be mistaken, the price to him was extraordinary. But he offers it at no cost to us. Our Bibles end with this declaration, this promise. Revelation 21 and 22, this is a, a mashup. He, God, said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give. Listen to this generosity language. From the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. He will be my son. The Holy Spirit and the church, the bride, say, come. That's the posture of God's people. That's the posture of God himself. He's calling people to come. He's calling people to come to him and to drink. And let the one who hears and embraces it also become a messenger and say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This describes a culture of generosity, a culture of honor. Jesus in his teaching don't do or do to others what you would have them do to yourself, he'll, he'll, he'll end it by saying, this is the law and the prophets, for this is the law and the prophets. What does that mean? Like, what is he getting at there? A fourth century a bishop in North Africa, a guy named Augustine, 
He commented on this and he said, this is what the law and the prophets were about, but not all about. Essentially, this unique teaching, it's not everything. It doesn't contain everything, but it is the irreducible summary of the entire Old Testament and how the entire Old Testament teaches us to relate to our fellow man. Let me rephrase that just to get it correctly. It's the irreducible summary of what the Old Testament teaches us about what it is to relate to our fellow man. It's embodied in the second part of the great commandment, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then God says, I am the Lord, my stamp of authority. Do this, live into this. The main thing for the people of God is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This ethical standard is incredibly easy to embrace, incredibly easy to understand, very, very difficult to live out consistently. And so we need strength beyond us, do we not? Like white knuckling it is not going to do it, man. It's going to leave us in the ditch. We need the grace of Jesus Christ, which is why we need prayer. He says, come and ask and I'll give. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask and our Father will provide generously. We need prayer. We need to live into this in faith and in dependence. Not independence, but in dependence on God himself. So let's pray. Let's ask him. Father, would you help us to live into this teaching? It's a moral teaching. It's a teaching that tells us what to do. It's a teaching that you don't give us specifics in the sense of go down to the store and buy them a, or show up to their house and move them to. But you do give us specifics through your spirit and through the minds that you've given us to know how to use this ethic to meet the needs that are in front of us on any given day and moment. So for your people, would you create motive within us that, that this kind of a demeanor is a response to your goodness to us. And so it comes out of overflow of our love of the gospel and our embrace of it, but that it's not a lazy philosophy of life, but rather it's an active, like calloused handed, sweaty at times, being willing to bleed at times on behalf of brothers and sisters. Help us as your people to look for ways to actively do unselfish good to the people around us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.